My guest today, Kate Inglis, is a photographer and author living in Nova Scotia, which is somewhere I've never been but would love to eventually go. She writes children's fiction, including award-nominated novels and picture books. And Kate's writing through the premature birth of her twins and then the subsequent loss of one and then life beyond eventually led her to create her internationally recognized book, Notes for the Everlost. In 2008, she then founded Glow in the Woods, which is an online community for bereaved parents. And then in 2012, she gave a, a TEDx talk called Parallelism, which really explored the similarities between the often solitary journeys of creative work and healing from grief. And in today's conversation, we dive into the peak moments along her journey, both highs and lows, from profound loss to revelation and creation, community and celebration, and all the stories that have shaped her path and the unexpected universality of her experience and her creative lens and voice and commitment to a life of creativity and of service. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. 
If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. I live in Lunenburg County, so that is the land of pirates and rum runners and Beaches and craggy salt, and the air is just rich with ocean's burp all the time. Mm, I like the way you describe that. <laughs> and when you say pirates, you literally mean pirates. I mean, oh, that yeah. was the, the yeah. place. Yeah, like, you know, under the sidewalk of the, of the library in Halifax, there are mutineers buried, there are skeletons buried all over the city of, of pirates. And then, of course, the most recent sort of generation of pirates where, you know, Al Capone used to kind of frequent the bay that I live on. Mm. Yeah. So, so of course, rum running during the Prohibition era was, was sort of the, the most recent pirates were those guys. Nah. So what's it like growing up in a place like that? Well, I suppose when you grow up in that place, it feels ordinary. And then you come to New York City and you are walking around with your head on a swivel and people go, no, Scotia, what? Like, oh, and they think that I'm exotic. And I think, well, I'm in New York. How can you think mm. that, that Lunenburg County is fascinating? But I think that the salt does kind of seep into you in a way that is instructional in terms of it's one of those kind of elements. It's one of those foundational elements that we're made up of that we need. You need a face full of spray from the ocean every now and then for health. And I think when you're far from it, I don't know, it's just one of those things that, that, that keeps you close to nature. And I think it's just something that's really good for health. Mm. So when you stray too far from the water for too long, do you feel it? Well, no, because I'm always fascinated and, and totally entranced with wherever I am. But then it's when I go back and I get off the plane and even just at the airport, you kind of just, oh, oh yeah, I'm home and I need that because the air really is just wet and salty all the time. Yeah, that's amazing. I was As I've read some of the way that you've described where you grew up, I mean, I grew up in a very different place. I grew up in a, in a small suburb of New York City that yeah. was actually um, East Egg from the Great Gatsby was my town. It's like the real town it was oh. based on. It's a small egg-shaped peninsula on Long Island. Um, but the end of my my town, it was a water town, and the end of my block was a beach. So I, I was a water kid. I grew up on the water all the time. Yeah. And there is something about um, it. So it's in me. If if I go too far away from it for too long, I just I don't have to be in it. I just have to be around it. And I've mm -hmm. learned that about myself. Yeah, definitely. And I find for me, there's also an urban rural divide as well. That that if I'm surrounded by too much concrete for too long, I start getting really janky. <laughs> you know, I start just feeling really uh, claustrophobic. I think I need grass under my feet. I need, yeah. I need a field where there's nothing or no one mm. near me. Yeah. So that does happen. I, I hear that. Um, so pretty young, it sounds like, um, growing up where you grew up, mm. you start to explore writing. Um, yeah. And it, it sounds like, from what I know, it kind of touched on your life pretty early. Yeah, I, I decided that I wanted to be an author when I was six, which is a bit like, you know, I mean, everybody has those wonderful right. sort of expansive ideas. I wanted ideas to be a fireman also. Six. Yeah, or an astronaut. <laughs> For a hot minute, right. Yeah, right. I wanted to be a professional roller skater or an author. 
Those are my two. <laughs> so when the first one didn't work out. Um, but I, I didn't know if I had any stories to tell. I knew that that's what I wanted to do. And my, my parents actually used to use writing as sort of punitive, <laughs> as an avenue for teaching me because I would do something wrong and they would get frustrated and they would say, okay, go write a story about this. Go write a story about a little girl who called the fire department when the house wasn't burning down just to see what would happen. And so I did. And so it really, um, I mean, that sounds terrible, but, but it was, it was just, it's always been sort of, um, a really essential part of life and something that my parents, when I said I was six and I wanted to be an author, they said, well, then get going. And they gave me empty books and staples and, and, and pencils. And they really kind of expected a lot of me from having made that declaration. And they still do. Okay, so now I can't let what you just said go. <laughs> so, so very early age, doing random things like calling the fire department just to see what would happen. Oh God, that so kind of tells me a little bit about what kind of a kid you were also. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, be speckled and uh, pigtails. Um, you know, I mean, every kid has those curiosities, those itches that they just have to scratch. Hmm. That's all I can say about that. <laughs> <laughs> the record has all been sealed. Like yeah. it can't go back. You don't have much of an right. effect on the world when you're when you're, you know, eight years old and to pick up the phone and look over your shoulder and whisper something into the phone and then all of a sudden you can hear the sirens coming. And it's like, yeah. Oh, look what I made happen. <laughs> so. Yeah. But I mean it also brings to mind for me, you know, I, I grew up in a time where I was out the door after school and we were just in the neighborhood, sometimes yeah. doing good things, sometimes doing not so good things and running all over the place and then come back for, you know, like homework and dinner and then go out until the sun went down. I feel like the world isn't like that anymore, at least in New York, which makes me curious where you live in a, a fairly isolated place in mm -hmm. a small area. Is it more like that, sort of like where you are or not really anymore? Um. I grew up in Halifax, so I did grow up in a so city. So in the city part yeah, of Yeah, I grew up in exactly the same situation Got that it. you describe, you know, that I was on my bike until everyone was, you know, everyone's mom or dad was out at the front door bellowing out that it was time for supper and we would all kind of scatter. But now, gosh, it's, I mean, where I am now is is really quiet. It's It's exceedingly quiet. And our sort of social circle and our, our kids' social circle is kind of spread out over a few little outports and villages. So it is really different than when I was growing up. And, and what is our sense of freedom when you're already um, really quite dispersed? It, it's really different. And, and it's something to kind of navigate as we go for all of us. Yeah, I know. I'm constantly trying to figure it out myself. And as a parent, too, it's sort of like, okay, yeah. so where is the, like, how, how much you're on the side of safety versus freedom and exploration? And yeah, um, I know it's sort of a raging debate these days. Definitely. Jumping back into your story. Um, so now that we've sort of like talked about the, <laughs> yeah. the side of things we can talk Moving about. On. So you start to discover that writing is a, is a part of you at an early age and your parents encourage it, which is pretty awesome. When does it start to sort of become more of the, this is, it's just kind of something I'm doing on the side to like, oh, this could be something more for you. Yeah. Well, I mean, I got a degree in uh, public relations. Okay. So what I. What was that about? Well, that was um, so sort of communications. Right. I knew that if I was ever, you know, whatever my career might be, that I would want 
to do something that 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 I that, that I could write all the time, but hopefully make some money. Uh, and it hadn't even occurred to me at that point that I might write books. But the first novel that I wrote uh, was actually something that I wrote when my when my nine month old uh, was was strapped to me and I was going for a walk with someone else's six year old. And we were in the woods and his, you know, hands were wet and his feet were cold and his belly was empty and he was kind of whining. And I started telling him a story about pirates in the woods. And so that became my first novel only because I went home and I thought that was kind of fun. I should just jot that down so I don't forget it. And I did. And it was really easy. It just kind of rattled off. But I think if I had have opened up a Word doc with that horrible empty page and the blinking cursor. I know that page. <laughs> yeah, I know it now, but I didn't that first time, you know, because I wasn't sort of setting out to write a novel. I was just scribbling down something kind of fun that I had told on a walk. So writing was always something that that had been my career, uh, but in, in the corporate sense. And then it became creative. It became about children's literature and, and writing writing sort of novels and picture books. But then, of course, the explosion in life happens, mm. my, my first. And then writing became something that was more like a life raft. Yeah. So, so share what happened. Yeah. So my first pregnancy was ordinary and lovely, and my first baby was ordinary and lovely. And my second pregnancy was a complete and utter disaster. <laughs> so so um, I was pregnant with identical twin boys. Um, and they were born at uh, 28 weeks by crash C-section, which is exactly as it sounds. You're sort of sprinted down the hallway on a gurney, and then the room explodes, and then babies emerge from it in various states. And in my case, uh, Liam and Ben were both about two pounds. Uh, ben was two pounds on the nose. And uh, we were in the NICU for two months, and Liam died after six weeks. Ben is fine. He's 12, almost. And uh, I feel like the luckiest unlucky person and the, the unluckiest lucky person. I'm not sure which. But, you know, that was the first thing in my life that ever really felt like a trial. You know, it, and of course, you don't realize that your life has never really been a trial until the first true trial hits you. Because I had been sort of fussing over all, all of the vanities and regular things that we fuss about. But my life to that point had been loving and surrounded by, you know, delicious food and lovely people who cared for me. And, you know, nothing fancy, but all of the good things. And the only people in my life that had ever died had been old and happy. And that is always sad but it felt universally sort of cosmically acceptable. Um, and so this was the first thing in my life that ever happened, being Liam's mother, that was cosmically unacceptable. That was something I couldn't reconcile. And also, his body was the first dead body I had ever seen. Um, the body of a six-week-old premature baby that had had brain surgery and heart surgery and Oh, what a mess. What a poor, sweet mess he was. Um, but what an illumination, though. You know, and I, I, I've never been the same since then, but not in the ways you might think. 
you know, it's the joy is bigger and brighter because of him. And the sadness is more mythical and more important because of him. And so ever since then, just the riddle of being alive and being human and being the only sentient animals, you know, having that curse of knowing that we're going to die and that we're going to love and then lose that love one way or another. What a lonely thing to grapple with, you know, that we're the only animals who really kind of get that beyond instinct. And I've been thinking about that ever since. And it's something that I'll always think about. Mm-hmm. And you, you also, I mean, you're, I don't know if you did this in real time, but I know you were writing during basically every day through, it looks like through the entire experience. Were you, because I read the updates, you know, like with each mm. day. Yeah. As um, you progress through like these first six weeks and the eight weeks. And is that something that you were actually sharing publicly at, in, in real time during that whole thing? It was. Yeah, I, I had started writing publicly just because that's what people were doing at the time. Mm. And it was kind of fun to be able to kind of share the, the sort of parenthood journey. Yeah, this was 2007. Right? Yeah, right. yeah. So yeah. it was also like the very early days of blogging. When it a lot was. of people were just starting to do that mm-hmm. on a regular basis. Yeah. Exactly. And it was something that, that was never for me a, a primary thing. But of course, you know, I remember it was the, I guess it would have been the day after the surgery. And I just shot up in bed in the middle of the night and I almost knocked over my IV. And I remember kind of it was completely... It probably wasn't pitch black. It was a hospital. But to me, you know, I was just so muddled with morphine and God knows what else. And I was feeling around for a pad of paper and a pencil. And I started writing. I couldn't see, but I I started writing because it was this frantic. It wasn't anything artful, but it was just this frantic bubbling over of, of trying to. And I think it was just my instinct that whatever happens, it's going to be really brutal. Um, Because both babies were alive at that point. But they were alive in a way that was really terrifying. And that's not the way you're supposed to feel when you look at your babies. You're not supposed to kind of recoil. But that, that circle of parents who have seen a premature child, it is horrifying. (laughs) It is because that, that being is, is almost alien-like. They don't look like a baby. They look like a fetus because they are a fetus. And so, you know, it's starting to feel very graphic at this point. But, you know, I thought whether they, I didn't know if either of them would survive. I had no idea what lay ahead, but I thought this is the first really monumental thing that's ever happened to me. And if I'm going to be joyful ever again, then I need to, I need to be directing the story. I need to be finding the shape of whatever is going to happen. And it wasn't anything conscious. I just, I can only look back on it now and think that was the compulsion. I can't just let it all unfold because I need to be able to to allow this dragon to live inside me without burning me up. And somehow writing felt like dragon taming Mm. in a way. So, I mean, it seems like it was almost this blend of 
both an outlet for something that you were feeling and at the same time, something that maybe gave you some remote semblance of control. Like there's this one thing that I can, I, I can write, like I can get this on the page the way that I need to get it out of me. Yeah, like I've never been so out of control in my life, you know, um, to have a two pound baby have open heart surgery and have to have to sign those papers and watch mm-hmm. them take the incubator away. Uh, no control, <laughs> no control there whatsoever, but the narrative is mine to control. And whether it is a two pound baby trying to recover from a drug addiction or a divorce or some other kind of really ground earth shaking loss or trauma, um, whether it's artful or not, whether it's writing or not, we can all shape that narrative. That is the thing that you can control. And it doesn't have to be pretty. It doesn't even have to be optimistic. I kind of love pessimism. (laughs) There's something really powerful in allowing those feelings to to boil. Um, That's where our heat comes from, and that's a really important heat. And so I I think that that's really important in, in whatever way is your way. For me, it happened to be writing. It doesn't have to be tidy. It doesn't have to be reconciled. But to let that lack of reconciliation have a place and to honor that confusion and to honor that mess in some way, I think, is is the way back to, to health. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, too, that you describe it as this let the reconciliations let the reconciliation sort of have its own place and let it happen um but it's i mean is it reconciliation at the time or is it simply just like there's something if i keep whatever this is that i'm feeling inside it's going to absolutely destroy me and mm-hmm. i don't know what it's going to look like i don't know if i will ever reconcile i don't know if i'll ever process it i just know it can't stay where it is right now no, yeah, that was the instinct, I yeah. think. Um, I needed to be able to look at the horror, the memory of it, and the that existing moment. I needed to be able to look at them and not just see their context. I needed to try to dig deeper than that and see there are very small moments of peace and beauty and intention and love, and sometimes in our lives, it's hard to surface those things. It is a labor, almost a bit like birth, just as messy, just as painful, but really, really worthwhile to to understand that even in the middle of the worst kind of mess, when we feel most ashamed, when we feel most abandoned and most unlucky, that even inside of that moment, there is so much beauty all around. And it's okay if you don't see it. There's even beauty in your own rage. You know what I mean? This is not some kind of a call to positive thinking. I think that's absolute bunk. <laughs> I like being cranky. <laughs> so it's the salt air. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Hey. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. What was the compulsion to go one step further and write not just what you are moving through for your own purpose, but also to share it? Well, you know, I, I was writing through the actual sort of ordeal, through, through that chapter of my life. 
But of course, it doesn't end. You, you bring one child home from the hospital who's premature, that's being weighed by the gram every week back in the hospital. Um, it was two years after and three years after that that labor continues um, while also looking, you know, taking care of an infant. And I think by sharing it, I felt uh, less alone. I found it easier to find other people that had to carry the same trauma that I had to carry. And they can feel hard to find sometimes. You know, when you, when something like that happens to you and you're out moving in the world, this world in particular rejects the very notion of a dead baby. And this world rejects all kinds of uncomfortable things. Whatever it is, that sort of a little piece of horror is for you or for whoever's listening. There are there's a whole host of things that the world won't look won't look at you square in the face. It might be cancer, it might be any number of things, but especially the rare things, which thankfully, you know, infant loss is rare, thank goodness. But what that means is when you're walking through the world having to carry that, having to be that kind of bereaved, nobody will look you in the face. They they pull back from you almost instinctually. And it does make you feel a bit like Medusa. It makes you feel like people, people, you can see it unfolding that, that people come forward to you, they see you, they you can see it on their face that, oh God, she's not pregnant anymore. I heard what happened. And they kind of they start looking at their shoes. And that is something that is so profoundly isolating. And then you sort of layer that in on top of how the world wants grief to be tidy. And the world wants grief to suit it rather than the other way around. And so, you know, you've got to think positive and you don't want to make people uncomfortable. And now don't go turning into one of those angry people. You know, don't talk about it too much and don't this and don't that. And you should be grateful. And there is nothing more enraging than having people say those things to you when you are absolutely shooting off sparks like 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 a bad electrical wire and you can't help it and you're just angry and you just hate the world for this for what you've seen for what you've had to witness and the most rich moments of healing for me came from people who would see me coming and would stride right up to me and take me by the shoulders and look right at me and say, oh my God, what happened? That is the shittiest thing I've ever heard. You know, those people who kind of came up to me with passion and vigor and, and a really sort of a real outrage for me that that's not supposed to happen. How on earth are you doing? And they look at you and they keep looking at you and Oh, I remember thinking, yeah, you know, that sucked. <laughs> like, to put it mildly, that was awful. And then the person looks at you and says, yeah, that was awful. I can't even believe it. Like, I don't even know what to say. It's not that they came up to me and said something profound or, or, or that they knew what to say. It's that they came up to me with injustice in their hearts. And something in me was just starving for that. And when that would happen to me, I could breathe. And I, I would say, well, thank you. Thank you for seeing my awfulness. It means a lot. And then I would walk away feeling 
better, you know? And, and that, that kind of, um, that kind of interaction, I think, is what pushed me to, I mean, I just had to keep writing, but I thought, you know, I hope that, that in sharing my reckoning with all this, I hope that someone else has that sensation who needs it. Hmm. Yeah. I've, I've, um, we've had on, um, number of years ago now who's uh, become a, you know, a friend of mine, Megan Devine, who, oh, yeah. um, you know, like writes about similar things and she's, she's shared such, you know, the the same experience of the world just wants you to sort of get through it to see the right side. And, mm-hmm. and I guess largely because everybody around you feels so uncomfortable yeah. with just the thought of what you're going through that they want you to feel better so they can feel better. <laughs> yeah, they It's want not necessarily it. a negative yeah. thing and they think they're like offering help, but at the same time, it's really about them and not you. Oh, entirely. Yeah. yeah. Essentially they're asking you in that moment to perform a presentation of yourself to their satisfaction. Hmm. And that's just not possible. It's not ever going to be possible. So, yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, Megan is, is a different, if, if there's a many-sided coin, she's, she's right. another side of the same coin in that way. Because obviously for her, it was her husband, her partner, I mean. And for me, it was a baby. And I think there are some other layers in there. You know, I, in the book, I talk about it feeling a bit like a kaleidoscope. Mm. That it's all the same elements, but when you look through it and turn it, you see the same elements, but they rearrange in a way that, that is something completely distinct. And so I think in our suffering, which is the one thing that really unites us, you know, death and taxes, <laughs> um, we see those familiar colors and those familiar shapes kind of clickety-clack their way into something that isn't at all like what I went through, but I can see what I went through and what you went through. And we can kind of connect in those ways, you know, um, yeah, yeah. It's and those those connections are are absolutely life saving, and and it really it does feel that way. Um, that that sounds like I'm over overstating. I had to kind of stop and think: Am I saying that too strongly? But I don't think I am. I think when I mean life saving, I don't mean you know CPR. I mean those moments actually prop up your journey into whatever life then becomes. Hmm from that point of explosion. Yeah. And as you shared, while you're moving through this time, you have, you know, these were twins and one child was lost, but one child is there. And you also Mm -hmm. had a previous child. Yeah. So there's, you know, there's this experience of you trying to figure out and, and move through this profound loss. And at the same time, you know, feeling a sense of, of obligation and, and wanting to be there for the people who are still with you. Right. Which has got to be just this strange set of polarities to live with on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like Ben's birthday every year. I mean, <laughs> I, people around me say, oh, you've got to stop saying it that way. But it is true. It's Ben's birthday is the anniversary of the worst day of my life. You know, and it's so awful to put it that way, but it's so true. And I can't help but be in that moment and be mixing buttermilk into 
into, you know, flour and cocoa and thinking, yeah, this was, this was one of the many ways that, that I lost Liam. You know, we lost him a few times and he kind of came scrabbling back just by way of intervention, you know, as they have to try. And it is the anniversary of one of the worst days of my life. And then, you know, that's May 5th and then June 15th is the anniversary of the other worst day, which is the day he died. But in the same way that there were gifts on that day, on the birthday, obviously Ben is, 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 is a living testament to that gift. I know exactly what Liam would have looked like because they were identical. I don't know necessarily that what, made, that what makes Ben tick would have made Liam tick, but I certainly like thinking about it. But there were also gifts on Liam's death day that were entirely shocking and unexpected. And I think it's really fascinating how different deaths can, uh, can, can be, can feel oddly comforting, oddly wholesome, oddly beautiful. Um, and some of them are just flat out horrific and, and absolutely nightmarish. Um, and I guess Liam's death was all of those things. But what it left on me was uh, sort of as the, was the imprint of things that I don't know that I'll ever figure out. And I think I'm more content to not try, but to just try to remember what that felt like, you know, because he was right here on my chest when he died. And I think there's some kind of muscle memory there. There was the sensation that I had when he died that was really unexpected. Um, I think that a lot of us witness death. I can only say that I've only witnessed just the one. A lot of us have been in the room when people have died. But I was actually on him. He was on me when he died. And, you know, after I leave here today, I'm going to go to the Hayden Planetarium, taking myself to church. <laughs> And I'm going to look up at the stars, and that is the moment that I'm going to be thinking about. And it's beautiful. It was death. It was awful. It was wrong. It was cosmically messed up. It will forever enrage me. But it was beautiful. And what a, what a funny puzzle it is to be human, you know, and to keep going and to keep on making birthday cakes and toasting bagels and running in mud puddles because you've still got to do that because you have a two-year-old and a four-year-old at home at the same time as trying to figure all this stuff out and figure out how to keep going on. But really, that's what we all have to do, whether it's a two-year-old, a four-year-old, an infant, or a beloved grandparent. We still have to get up in the morning and put jam on a bagel when it feels absurd to be putting food in our mouths because how can we? But you do, you just you just do. And that's how we honor the people we love, I think, with strawberry jam. Mm. <laughs> and planetarium visits. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. As you're moving through this, um, you're writing also. You're waking up every morning, <laughs> putting the jam on the toast and doing what you need to do to get through every day. Um and as you you said also, like writing was one of your outlets, it was one of your ways to sort of like 
express what you need to express. Mm. Um, and at the same time, you also said that people, um, being around people who in some way saw you, understood you, um, didn't try and make everything better, but just stood next to you, mm. um, was really, really important to you. And it sounds like you also felt some kind of call to create a way for people who had been through loss to find each other. Right. Where does that come from? I and mean, how did that sort of begin? Well, a year after Liam died, uh, I started Glow in the Woods, which is uh, an online community for bereaved parents, particularly those who have experienced infant loss. Because there was nowhere, there was nothing. There was a lot online at the time for miscarriage, because miscar miscarriage is really common. But there was really no way of finding a space to be necessarily raw about what I had been through um, in a way that didn't feel like mixed company. Like I can say some of the things I need to say and have someone else not flinch. And I thought, you know, imagine what that would feel like if I could be in a room full of people who have had a baby on them, who have held a dead child. I, it's, it's, it sounds so absurd and, and ridiculous that, that any of us have to do that. But what would that feel like? What kind of an exhale would that feel like to be able to, to let all our snakes out and no one's going to look away? And so I made that place and then the years went by and I, I sort of went back and kept writing more children's books and eventually kind of graduated away from having to write more frequently about grief um, because life continues to carry on and the grief became kind of more embedded and, you know, that dragon kind of grows content. It's still there, but it's kind of curled up in front of the fire like a cat, you know, just resting and only blowing off smoke now and then. And so I didn't really need to be writing about that all the time, but then I got a call from someone that had really just been a very distant acquaintance through a photography community that I used to uh, write for. And my phone said Paris. And I thought, who do I know in Paris? And I didn't know who it was. I picked it up. And there was a woman on the other end of the phone that was just wailing and crying. And through, you know, her cries, I could figure out that it was this fellow writer on this, this photographer. And she said, I, I didn't know who else to call. Um, my son didn't wake up from his nap yesterday. I think he was maybe three or four months old. And you're the only person I could think of that has been through this. And I don't know how to breathe. I don't know what to do. I don't know how I'm supposed to live. And in that moment, I... You know, that was probably, how long ago was that? Maybe seven or eight years past, you know, Liam's death. And I certainly didn't flinch. And I think in that moment, she needed someone to let her know that she didn't need to die. Um, and I knew what to say to her. Like, she just wanted input. She wanted me to talk. And... Because she didn't have her own words yet. She was just, you know, completely, um, she was obviously just wrecked. Um, 
but she needed to hear someone telling her that she wasn't always forever going to be wrecked. And so I hung up the phone after that conversation. And I thought, I think it's time for me to write that book now. That, you know, because I, I, I felt calm. I didn't feel like it taxed me to kind of time travel in that way. I'd been kind of delaying writing notes for The Everlast for so long because it is such a deep dive. And I was just trundling along through my life and life was busy and joyful. And I thought, I don't know if I'm ready to kind of go down to the bottom of that well again in a way that I know is going to be required for me to write this book. But when Irene called me and we had that conversation, it was it was a call more than just a phone call. And so I hung up the phone and I started writing Everlost. And that kind of became that bigger project in creating space for those Medusas, for those people who, you know, not just for infant loss, but for people who are carrying something that feels irreconcilable, that feels like it's upturned everything that they know about how to live. Yeah. I mean, I, I can imagine also nobody plans <laughs> for what you went through to happen. Yeah. And as somebody who's on a path, you know, like, um, you know, like as, as a mom, but then also somebody who's, you know, sort of found their way to contribute to the world, like as a writer, as a creator, as a maker, talking about fantasy and beautiful children's stories and illustrated things like that. And then you find yourself in this, in this place, but not necessarily on the one hand, knowing that you're moving through something, knowing that this is, that you're writing your, your ability to express and to gather is powerful for you. Um, but also wanting to, not wanting to live in this place for the rest of your life mm. and wanting to sort of like move through it, never being the same, but not staying in the same place that you are and getting to a place years down the road where you're like, okay, so as you said, there is joy. You know, like there's a lot of good in your life mm. and you're able to see it and live in a different place. And you're off and you're writing and you're doing different things. And then to get that call and kind of say like weighing, you know, like, do I step back into this mm -hmm. at this point years down the road? You know, as I've like, I've processed, I've gotten to a certain place. Um, it's not just writing that book, you know, it's you completely dropping back into that place on a personal level. But also when the book comes out, it's you sort of putting a flag in the ground also for a window of time as every author knows when a book comes out saying yeah. like, because people will, will from that point forward identify you as the ex person, as the lost person, as the grief person, as this person and look to you um, for a lot of different things as that person. Yeah. Was this all sort of what was spinning around your head as you were trying to figure this out? It was, you know, because I, I founded Glow in the Woods and for a while, I sort of, among friends, I would joke that I felt like the Pied Piper of death. You know, that there was that, plus I was doing public speaking for memorial walks. Uh, there was one particular really, really lovely walk in Edmonton that I would do. I think it was six years I did that. And it was deeply fulfilling, but I didn't want that kind of work creatively to define me any more than I wanted that experience to define me. You know what I mean? Because I want to be multidimensional. I want to be silly and 
um, playful and joyful and adventurous and all of those things. I never want to be reduced to, oh, there's, there's the woman whose baby died. So I think that if I hadn't have already written a couple of novels and if I hadn't already sort of been fairly established as, as an author before that, I don't know that I would have written Ever Lost as my mm-hmm. first book because then it would be grief, grief author Kate Inglis. Whereas now it's, it, it really is all over the map. You know, I've got another children's picture book coming up and it's like going from, you know, I, I would say to people, would say, oh, what have you been working on? You did pirates and adventure novels and you did this book about monster poetry and dress up. What's next? And I would say, oh, death. And people would kind of step back and I'd have to say, no, 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 no. It's so good. I'm so excited about this book. But I am glad that it wasn't my first because then that would be something that would feel somewhat tethered in that defining way. Um, but, you know, then you just write something else. I mean, you just, it might have just as easily been my first book. Yeah. I mean, well, yes, and. I mean, you do just write something else. And, and, mm. and at the same time, when you write something like what you wrote, which is so deep and so moving and about something. Yeah so emotional, like something that led somebody years later to reach out to you out of nowhere because you were the one person they felt like they could talk to. There is, people will want to keep you (laughs) in that place. They'll want to define you as that person. Even when you're like, look, this is, I wrote this because um, I had something to share. I had something to say, and I can't pick up the phone for every person in the world who calls me. So this Mm -hmm. hopefully will get into the world and help me. And then I, I have other things to write and other things to do and a, and a life to live. There's a, there's often when you write something like what you've written about the topic, there is a real compulsion for people to want to keep you as that person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, I mean, for years, people would write to me and send me thousands of words, like, mm-hmm. let me tell you about my baby. And this would, you know, these little bombs would go off in my email all the time. And I would think, oh, okay, right, like I, I, I need to absorb all these stories. I need to respond to them. Um, so in a way, I guess I hope that Everlast does that. But at the same time, I don't, I've never minded, at least not so far, when people reach out and, and they say all kinds of things. They say, you know, I, I didn't lose a baby, but I lost a, a husband. And, and they talk to me about where they are in their, in their own reckoning. And they they tell me what aspect of my story or what aspect of Everlost felt like input for them. I don't see that book as being answers. Notes for the Everlost is simply sharing and articulating all those questions that will never be answered and that can never be answered. But what do we do in the midst of all this riddle? Mm, yeah. How, you know, when we can't make sense of it, how do we go forward? And it is a shared dialogue. And so I love it when people get in touch and they say, this is what I bring to that dialogue. Um, So far, it doesn't feel taxing. And if it ever does start feeling taxing, then I don't know. I'll have to figure that out when I get there, I guess. But Mm. I do hope the book kind of takes on a life of its own in that way. Yeah, I feel it's more about companionship than than to do. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Thank you.
Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Part of what you write is also poetry. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, or but I would almost say that everything you write is poetry to a certain extent. Oh, thank you. I mean, there's yeah. a lyricism and a rhyme and a, and the rhythm to your writing. You're right. Um, and and it's also kind of interesting because you know, like the topper we're talking about, like people may listen and be like, "Well, this is heavy." Right. And at yeah. the same time, um, sitting across from you, people can't see this, but. As we've been talking, a lot of times where you're talking about the what would be perceived as the darkest moments, there's a smile on your face. <laughs> but there's almost like this like knowing smile of like there's almost like a bit of a sinister smile on your face. Yeah. Like there's a part of you which is a little edgy and sarcastic and snarky. Yeah. <laughs> which which is really weird that it comes through in your writing in the context of all oh, sorts gosh. of different topics. I hope so. In a way which is which kind of it just changes the way it lands. Mm, I don't ever, that one of my biggest fears was that my writing would be unintentionally saccharine mm. because- Because you're not. <laughs> I am not a sugary person. I am not a woo-woo person. I love those people, but that is not me. I am a pessimist. I am cantankerous. I am angry. I'm not bitter, but- I love my anger. I love my discontent. And I love all that I don't understand. I love not understanding things because all the possibility in the world lives there in our lack of understanding. Tell and, me more about that. Well, I think that it's why, it's why I'm so excited to go to the planetarium. I get a real charge out of feeling insignificant and small, like like a hiccup in terms of my existence. The fact that we are so insignificant, the fact that our carbon and our oxygen and everything that all the dust that, that, that clings together and happens to make a body, a body that works or a body that doesn't, there is such randomness in it 
that makes us so extraordinary. You know, our insignificance makes us ridiculously meaningless and ridiculously wonderful. And I love mashing that around in my head, um, even when it's kind of all wrapped up in my own trauma. In terms of, you know, having had a child who died um, and having had incredibly perplexing and bewildering aspects of having known him and having held him as he died, it's delicious and exquisite to have this, to, to have been that close to the veil between knowing everything and knowing nothing. And for 12 hours as he died, after they took out the ventilator, I was at that veil of existence. And that sounds, it feels strange to put it that way, but my goodness, what a gift. I have no answers, but I remember how it felt. And it, I wouldn't wish it on anybody, but it is one of, I think, probably the biggest treasure in my heart is having held him through that. And I can't tell you why. I can't tell you that I've made any decisions about what happened to him. But it's that pivot point, that insignificance and that lack of knowing that freaks us out so deeply as humans. We really are incredibly arrogant creatures. We love knowing stuff. But what we don't know and submitting to what we don't know and just sort of marveling at it is one of our richest grounds for peace mm. and for gratitude and for your sense of humor, you know, to, to marvel at all that we don't know. It's just, it's marvelous. And so that just feels like a really important, I mean, I guess I could call it a practice, but I don't practice it. I just cling on to it, all that I don't know. And that feels important to me. Mm. I've heard it argued that the vast majority of what we do during our waking hours is a quest for immortality. Oh, goodness. <laughs> it's basically, you know, everything that we can do to not acknowledge our own and the impermanence of uh, like those around us. Um, and, and at the same time, I know that, you know, you're alive on the planet for a certain number of years. You're going to go through stuff. Um, mm -hmm. You're going, everybody is going to experience loss in, in your context. It was this one extreme example. But if anybody's listening to this, who's older than X years on the planet, like you oh, will yeah. have experienced your own version of mm -hmm. extraordinary loss and the ability to look at the world and in some way, even for a heartbeat, see wonder Ugh. Is is everything, um, and it's simultaneously, like you said, simultaneously terrifying, and and yet is the the biggest gift. Yeah. Um, and it's also, I think, you know, kind of circling back to a different dimension of your what you do. You know, as as a creator, as a maker, as a writer, you have to exist in that place for long periods of time because that's where the magic comes from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, creative people have to play with terrifying things. They're kind of compelled to. And I think it makes all creative people just a little bit wacky mm. in a really good way. Um, but yeah, that is creativity, is to to play with what scares us the most. And um, 
Yeah, what an what an honor to be able to do that. Yeah. You teach writing to a certain extent these days too. Oh, right? I teach it sometimes, um, right. retreats and stuff like that. Um, yeah, kind of all over the map. When you when you do that, is this something that comes up? Is this something that you invite people into? Oh gosh. Not loss, but the yeah. the idea of stepping into the space of the extraordinary unknown in the name of tapping something better, bigger, greater. Definitely. I think in order to do any good creative work, even if we're just practicing trying to put words together, um, we have to get into territory that's frightening. There is no greater exercise for a writer than to try to articulate what is impossible to articulate. And, and there was something about doing that in the hospital and every day since that really appeals to that cranky part of me. Hmm. And I am going to find the words to describe how I'm feeling because I am going to make people know where I'm at, whether they like it or not. <laughs> like, I, I need to not let this sort of inexpressible thing swallow me whole. And so I'm going to conquer it by expressing it in a way that makes me feel like, ah, there. Yeah. I've, I've, I've made something that feels like it represents where I am. And that's so deeply satisfying. And so in encouraging other people to write, whatever they're writing about, we want to try to get there. It's like how every, every yoga uh, sort of visionary will tell you that the poses that you hate the most are the ones you need the I most, right? Yeah. But I mean, I think we're also afraid, I mean, to a certain extent, I think we, we feel that way about uncertainty, about the unknown. I've also seen, especially with writers, but not just with writers, with literally anybody who would consider themselves in any way um, tapping their creativity as the way they make their contribution, mm. there's a fear of what darkness might arise. Um if they really just open up and let it flow. I remember years ago, actually, um, I was at a little cafe in Santa Monica, California with um, Steve Pressfield, who you know, I've been a longtime admirer of and had an opportunity to sit down and, and interview him. And he was sharing a story with me about a friend of his, it's like a grizzled old cop who yeah. had started writing. And as he was writing, it went to a really dark place and it was scaring him. And he went back to Steve and he's like, this is what's happening. He's like, That's, it's freaking me out. Is this okay? And Steve was like, right through the darkness, right the darkness, like write it all, feel it all, and then mm. write it all. Like, don't censor that. No. Yeah, I mean, you're saying that, and I'm just, my reaction is this welling up of, ooh. <laughs> it's like, like the go, go, good go, stuff, go. right? Yeah, get but to it that terrifies us Because I don't think we yeah. like to see that inside of ourselves. We're like, well, where does that come from? Is there something mm -hmm. dark and evil inside of me? Or if I'm capable of even you know, like seeing stories that go to this place and then expressing them and then just sharing them, you know, is that in some way because that's a part of me? Yeah. Um, and, and we're terrified of saying, well, maybe it is. <laughs> mm -hmm. It is. Yeah. We, of course it is. Oh my goodness. I mean, I think that people who turn away from their own darkness because they don't want to present that way. 
They don't want to be that person. Um, those are not, I'm going to make a statement here that's going to sound rash. I'm going to say it anyway. Those are, those people are going to be less healthy than people who allow their darkness to be there and they figure out how to talk to it. So there's a chapter in the book called A Chat with Death. And I imagine death is a thing that actually has to come and wants to come and talk to me. And nobody wants to talk to death. But those of us who have seen it have to spend the rest of our life talking to it. And sometimes we hide under the bed from it. Sometimes we're, you know, I think I say having heart, heart to hearts under the sheets with a flashlight. Because sometimes talking to death straight in its face um, is exactly what we need. And God, you can't deny that darkness. Because that darkness is just as important as the light. And so why not make it really beautiful? You know, I, I went to um, the Met yesterday. Um, and I always seem to go towards the modern wing. And so I was there, and um, there's another painter, Alex Colville, who was from Nova Scotia. And there is extremely expansive darkness in his work, almost mathematically so, in, in, in a way that I see, of course, all over the place at the Met. And um, when you see darkness done well, Gosh, it's such a good feeling. It just reaches right out and just grabs you by the scruff, you know? And it might be a little like, like it sort of makes us stop and it might make us uncomfortable, absolutely. But when it's beautifully done, when someone has really kind of just struck that gong really good and hard, and we can all feel that reverberation through our bodies, whether it's with a painting or a song or a book, anything. That vibration is what helps to connect us and link us as those sentient creatures that we are. And that is so, so, so important and so grounding and so, so humility making. You know, we need humility in order, you know, to, to remind us of our insignificance and to remind us of our fears. Because that, I think, that kind of humility helps us to calm down and realize we're not so important so that maybe we can just like get some work done and, and get over, get through that sort of spinning chatter in our heads. When you realize like, listen, you're not that important, just keep moving forward. You know, that that, that humility that comes from that vibration, from seeing really good, juicy darkness is a really wonderful thing. Yeah, it's so interesting as you're saying this. What flashed into my head was that much of the top of the podcast charts right now are really beautifully produced and well-told true crime stories. Mm, right, right. <laughs> and I've always kind of marveled at that. I'm like, mm -hmm. I'm like, yes, it's a part of the human condition. But I mean, and it's not even that it's being produced. It's that the fact that it is persistently at the very top of the charts means mm -hmm. is being devoured. It is being massively consumed. And I often wonder, I'm like, okay, so we're at a time in society right now where 
people are pretty anxious on edge as it is. Mm. And yet so much of what they're turning to to distract them from their day to day are beautifully told stories about rage and murder and death. Yeah. I'm like, what is going on here? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't even, I mean, you know, all of our big shot movies right now are apocalyptic. Yeah. It's a, it, the whole, we play right. it out over and over and over again. There's I mean, something about the human condition yeah. um, that draws us there. Um, and not in a way that makes us yearn to do or partake, but there's something that in some odd way connects us. Yeah. Cause I, don't I think know what it is. whether it's true crime or whether it's some pulpy horror, you know, flick or something, there is that moment of like, are you freaked out? Yeah, man, yeah. I'm freaked out. <laughs> oh, that was freaky. And there's this sort of like, are you, are you scared shitless right now? Yeah. 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 Uh, like there's something about gore. There's something about, you know, beautiful gore that, um, we're all going to have a little bit of our own yeah. and, you know, and it can be beautiful and it can be artful and it, it, uh, we see it all over the place. And yeah, I like that. Uh, so as we sit here, um, this feels a good place for us to come full circle as well. So if I offer out the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? I think in order to live a good life in a way that is, sustainable, not just in this moment to say, what is a good life? A good life is a vacation or a good life is a beautiful home. Not like that, but the kind of um, sort of uh, centering in the body that you get when you make peace with darkness. And when you do that, when you have, you know, when you're no longer afraid of that dragon inside you, when you don't mind the heat of it, when you acknowledge the heat of it and say, all right, little dragon, you burn on, because of course you should, because of what you've seen and what you've felt. And when you can let that live alongside the joy of the most perfect bowl of French onion soup on a really cold day and just have that perfect little moment that is just tactile, and listening to the conversations of the people around you and feeling really lucky and the sun is streaming through the window and you just have this perfect bowl of soup and the dragon is there and I'm carrying it around with me and I'm proud with how I carry it around. And I think that is the underpinning necessary for a good life. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E-T-Y-P-E. Com, or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.